This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott, or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, this is Vertoran. I'm Pierre Dalincin. This one is a little different. As usually, there is a book, but it's a book of word images that connect to memories that maybe connect to events. Future and Perfect is a Bildungsroman that records Adrian Rifkin's time in Paris in 1968, at the beginning of his career as an art historian and art writer. Adrian has written on contemporary art, film, classical and popular music, canonical and mass imagery, literature and pornography. He also taught art theory and writing in positions that have shaped the way that many of today's art historians think about the image. Adrian and I sat down in his home in North London. We spoke about the uses of radical pedagogy, dreams and the economy of memory. Wagner and the Teletubbies also make an appearance. As ever, you'll find links to the things we discuss in the show notes. Adrian, welcome to the show. Thank you. Having seen quite a few of your performances and lectures in recordings, I know that pretty much every single one of them starts with a borrowing with a piece of music. And my guess is that if I had asked you to prepare one for this, it would be Beethoven's Chaimé Clavier Sonata. But maybe I'm wrong. What would we be listening to right now? It would either be a bit of the hammer clavier, but then that would be difficult because I know why you're asking me this, and it's because I write about listening to many versions of it. So mm. I would have to choose which version. And sometimes I think I would start with UB40 song, which is Silent Witness. And I like that song, not only because I like it as a piece of music, and I like the harmonies, and I like the story. It seems to be telling of a particular moment of great political difficulty in Birmingham, Mm -hmm. when UB40 came together with the black community and the Indian community to think about how to sing the problems of racism 
and community and the history of the city. And I always loved this song, but I could never hear the words. So I just put my faith in <laughs> the idea that they were good. <laughs> and then actually only about five years ago, this is an old song now, I actually found the words on YouTube and realized they were even more than I'd hoped for. We agreed we would talk about the idea of sufficiency or adequacy. And my joke was going to be that I'm completely inadequate to the task of interviewing you and the volume of your collected essays runs into some 500 pages. Mm -hmm. I am certainly not adequate. But in one of our conversations recently, you reflected on the idea that there is such a thing as enough. And in yeah. your earlier invocation of the UB40 song, you, you sort of alluded to the idea that there was enough material already in this particular artifact. Mm. That there is such a thing as an artwork that does enough for its purposes and possibly beyond. Mm. And given that we will be talking today about writing, writing about art, and in fact, the book that we're talking about today, Future Imperfect, deals with art writing from the 1920s, or if not even earlier. How do we begin to think about what it is, what it, what it means to have said enough, to have written enough, to have produced enough? It's, it's not in a sense whether I've done enough, because probably one can't know that, one can't measure it. But it's about whether things I've read over a you know, 70 years since I was a child, in themselves have been enough, even at the earliest phase. By the time I was 10, maybe I'd read enough. Mm -hmm. Maybe by the time I was 15, maybe I'd read enough. It's very hard to say, you mm -hmm. know. Would it begin when I stopped reading Hiawatha and started reading Sir Walter Scott, for example? That would be a funny borderline. Would it begin when I stopped reading Walter Scott and started reading Proust when I was 18 or 19. It's not possible to say. So, so what, what I am trying to work with now is that anything which made a profound mark and which can't quit the memory must have been enough. So at the text I'm struggling with now, and I'm not doing very well because I don't know if I want to write it, this is the current in Kippet for the whole text, mm -hmm. of which about 15,000 words is written. And it's a quotation from one of Ronald Searle's Molesworth stories. <laughs> and this is Molesworth speaking. Personally, I'm not good at football. I just concentrate on hacking ever bowed. Headmaster yell at me, he sat. Mark your man, Molesworth one. What does he think? I am the Arsenal Chiz. Actually, Fotherington Thomas is worse than me. He is goalie and spent his time skipping about. He say, hello clouds, hello sky, hello sun, etc. When huge centre forward bearing down on him and shot whistles past his nose. When all the teams sat, you should have stoked it. So in the piece I'm trying to do now, it's kind of full of these things from that period of my life. And I'm trying to work out a way in which any one of them could be expanded into a new mm. book because of the way in which I now think I must have absorbed them.
So the first image in the text is uh, just a, a photograph of a very small illustration from a book on archaeology, a big child's book of archaeology that I was given, I suppose, when I was about eight or something. Mm -hmm. And in it, you see a very roughly drawn picture of Napoleon with his hands behind his back in a slightly desert landscape with horse people on horses riding in the distance behind him. And he's looking at the Rosetta Stone, <laughs> the very Rosetta Stone, which is in the British Museum, which arrived in the British Museum soon after that colonial expedition. And Napoleon is standing with his hat on and his arms behind his back, and he's staring at the indecipherable. And at one point in my performed work, I decided this was a good starting point. So I'd project the image onto a screen, and I'd spend perhaps the first five or even 10 minutes trying to adopt Napoleon's position <laughs> while staring at an object of which the interpretation or the gloss on it would unfold as I adopted this position and stop as I felt I had finally achieved it. And it wasn't easy. It was really hard work. So, so that's another image which seems in some way to have been adequate. Hmm. I had another book when I was even smaller, four or five, called The Tall Green House. And that was about the year uh, in the life of an oak tree. And I took it into school when I was four or five, and the teacher liked it and showed it to all the other kids in the class and said, we'll do a project. You each re-illustrate a page of this and gave us a wall to do it on. And looking back, maybe only about 10 or 12 years ago, when I was teaching at Middlesex and working on anti-pedagogical pedagogy, mm -hmm. I thought, about that moment, and I thought, gosh, you know, I actually thought, gosh, that might, might have been the best teaching I was ever given in my life. That is the model that's come back to me now in trying to activate this group of first-year fine arts students in Middlesex to develop their theoretical skills simply by having confidence in saying I, pointing to themselves, and then inventing the next phrase for themselves, rather than being given it by me. Inventing the next phrase out of a set of resources which they find because they realize that only they can do it. They can't, you know, take a quote from Bart, I think that advertisements which is what all my colleagues wanted. <laughs> they can say, I, 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 anyway. Could you say a bit more about the relationship between the utterance and the image? Is there a way in which this is somehow bilateral? In effect, I think in the little book, the first time I ever encountered a, a, a truly complex relationship between word and images, which was absolutely confounding in its complexity as well as its beauty, 
and anyway, I've talked or written enough about this now, was very briefly were Edgar Vint's seminars at Oxford in 1965. And he was weaving, you know, one of the great classic unpickings of Botticelli's Primavera and Botticelli's Birth of Venus in terms of the ways in which the painting becomes part of its condition of coming into being is that all these conflicting yet belonging to each other theological and aesthetic and pictorial and mythological discourses can be enunciated at the tip of a brush mm-hmm. or in a drawing or by pulling together different drawings and different visual sources which become available i suppose you know you use a very difficult um, and questionable concept from uh, Mannheim, or is it Simmel, as a total cultural fact, if you like, mm-hmm. using the word fact very much in several inverted commas. So the texts which Vint is reading, whether they're Neoplatonic or whether they're different versions of different early Christian theological texts which are filtered through, or whether he's looking at antique statuary and sculpture and the recovery of lost antique painting by verbal description, all these things become a condition of each other's existence. So in, in that sense, there's a coexistence of words and images as fragments of each other. Mm-hmm. And that's, for me, where Vint separated from Warburg's Builder Atlas, his picture atlas, in which they properly for Warburg, the images split apart from the word. Now, a lot of the current fashion for the Atlas criticizes Vint for not relying enough on the image and using too many words. But I think the opposite was true. He defigured the word by making it into a part of the image and vice versa. But again, that's something which it took me decades to work out how to handle. I mean, the day I started teaching in art school in 1917, I think it was called Contrasting and Complementary Studies. It changed every <laughs> few years. And I was with a group of students who in those days were still mainly working class students in a provincial art school. And I started trying to explain Vint on Botticelli to them. And they looked at me completely confounded and puzzled. And after about 40 minutes, they said, Adrian, because, you know, we all call each other by our first names. What on earth are you talking about? And I said, I don't know. Now you ask me, I have no idea at all. You know, I realized I hadn't assimilated anything of what had so excited me. So I threw it back to them. What do you think? And that became the centrality of the crit to the relation of word and image when you have an open-ended crit in an art school studio. Mm -hmm. And I could see that my future had to be as much there as in writing about art or art history or art writing. The one thing that was going to be at the core of my life was the studio crit. This is an interesting experience you just described, being confronted by students who had not had the same kind of acculturation and training as you. In one of your performances, you 
admit to having known early on that you were a faggy, petty, bourgeois intellectual. Mm -hmm. How does one deal with that clash? Because, of course, you would have entered this classroom with your experiences of classical aesthetic training. Mm -hmm. The book that we are discussing today is filled with these kind of reified vignettes in which you surround yourself with these dusty pieces of linguistic apparatus, whether mm -hmm. they are card catalogue fiches or, you know, or, or, or the, the books that you collect. These are all things that find themselves coming into a great clash with the reality of, of these students. I wonder how your language then develops, learning from, from the students. It results in the teaching situation to being in increasingly silent, actually. Mm. Either talking volubly until they tell you to shut up and then start intervening in what you've said, or simply listening to them, or helping to enable certain relationships between their seeing and their language. There was a time uh, in Middlesex when we wanted I wanted them to watch Les Silences du Palais, a film about the Tunisian Revolution, mm -hmm. made by, now I've forgotten her name, the only woman filmmaker Tunisia had ever produced, who became Minister of Culture and stopped making films. And it's an extraordinary film about the women in the Bay's palace hearing the sounds of the revolution coming in from outside. And I said from the beginning, look, we're not all equal in watching this film. You could have it in Arabic with French subtitles, in which case I can certainly follow it all. Or you can have it just in Arabic, in which case I guess we're all pretty equal. Because th these were students who typically from North London at that stage spoke many languages. So we agreed that we'd watch it in Arabic and no subtitles. And after 45 minutes, I put it on pause and said, are you okay? They said, just run it. It's gripping. <laughs> and that's the point where you begin to say people aren't fools. They're not, they're not fooled by the lack of the word, but they're actually taken up with the image and the sound which is provided with it. And that in itself is a figure which can carry them without it being fully understood, which won't be the case with every work. But for me, that was a very important point in learning something about silence, including one's own, which is the bit people always uh, misunderstand when they talk about Foucault's souci de soi. Because when Foucault talks about knowing when to speak, he also talks with equal weight about knowing when to shut up, actually. But that's the bit academics always <laughs> miss, because it can't be their job. So to go back to Middlesex, this is one a course taught by John Seth and myself. We asked the students to read Freud's Beyond the Pleasure Principle. We didn't discuss it with them. We just said, try to read it. You probably won't, but hey, you know. And then one of the, if you like, techniques we're using then is that someone, another colleague would come in and show them something. He'd say, hey, this is a video. A friend who's a video artist just sent me from Berlin. Let's watch it. He said, I haven't seen it yet. And he played. And it was a well-known video artist actually who teaches the ghostness. Again, the arguments were immediate and intense. But this 
group of 80 was split into 10 subcommittees, each of one of whom had a chairperson. They could hold discussions in little groups and appoint a speaker. And on about the third such session, there was a very, very bitter discussion, followed by a silence. I mean, it really was a bitter discussion. The groups were falling out with each other. <laughs> they were denouncing their chairperson for betraying their point of view, at which point the shy ones really Brilliant. spoke. That's <laughs> not what I did. And this silence came over them. And one of them stood up and said, this is the death drive. It's this. And then they started reading the essay properly. The, the point is that too much pedagogy, and especially too much radical pedagogy, is the worst thing. I, I will applaud that. You stuck with it for maybe 40 years. 43, actually, yeah. Things changed. I imagine that these techniques start becoming not obsolete, but just, just unsustainable by the time we get into 2010. And, and yeah. I don't think it's necessarily a great use of your time to reflect on how the university structures have changed because we, we, we know no. all this. But I also know, at least from the time when your own lectures and performance lectures have developed, started being recording, I think I observe there is a kind of pushback against being forced to drop these not radical in the radical pedagogy, the insistence on demanding attention on an image for a period of time of an audience mm. and demanding of their both linguistic and aesthetic senses to be engaged with whatever is under discussion. Did you, did you feel that you were able to carry any of these things through in your teaching? And your, your career got only you know, more distinguished in, in a certain sense. You know, one of your last titles was Professor of Art Writing at, at Goldsmith. So these are, these, I, I ask because I think it, it matters what shape you, you left these things in. What, what I came to think, and this was by the time I left Leeds, is that an individual ends up doing what an individual has to do. I don't think in everything I've been through there's been a single pedagogical enterprise, or if you want to call it that, which has survived. I had as much hostility from my colleagues who had their syllabuses worked out and who were progressive radical people as I did from administrations, just as much. They, they really didn't want it. They wanted the students to write 500-word glosses on one item from Bout's mythologies to show they'd understood, to show that they could construct an argument. And my argument was always, no one can construct an argument if they have nothing to say. So they must first find something to say, and then they will write. Nothing will be a burden. And I, I think I was right all along. But it's a very minority position to say that the syllabus comes last. You know, it was in, in that ending period, we said when the structures were becoming much more oppressive, all the syllabuses had to be agreed with a committee, including someone called the Teacher and Learning Committee. Mm. And the guy there was filling in the box. He said, what shall I put under aims and objectives? And I said, nothing. He said, you can't have nothing in the box. <laughs> I said, I just asked you to write the word none. Okay? So you write in none. And he said, but the government in... Yeah. I said, listen, you are a clerk. 
I am the professor. I'm telling you to write none in that box. No one spoke to me again from that committee after this. But it was crucial. No, you can't do that anymore. That's the horror of it. As as a moan, of course, the purpose of administration is to justify the existence of administration. Mm. That's a given. But it does. That's right, Mills. It goes back to the 40s, yes. So, yeah, I think we're in a kind of weird moment when the university and the humanity has given up on itself, but it cannot give up on administration. No. But let's talk about what that education actually is for. So, we talked about talking about art. And from talking about art comes writing about art and comes having to say something. You've written about a bewildering array of subjects. I mean, formally, there's there's art that's not at all contemporary. There's writing about contemporary art. There's writing about film. You write about Maoism. You write about music. And there's always this idea that often at least in the pieces of writing of yours that I've engaged with, there's always this idea that they are themselves the artwork. Mm. Every time you write about an artifact, it is as though as to use it as an accessory, as a prop for something else, and it becomes an aspect of the vocabulary. Even when it's a subject, it's actually the object with which you, you do something else. Yeah, I think... Uh, yes, a friend of psychoanalyst in New York, a feminist psychoanalyst, said to me years ago, and it was a great insight into my writing, which I hadn't understood. And she was uh, reading the draft of a piece. I think it was in the Angara, then and now piece. And she said it's like watching a series of moving images crossing over each other, forwards and backwards. And... Once she said, I can see that and I can understand the flow of the text, but Mm. it is something which you have to recognize as not belonging to text as a technique. I I, I ended up thinking the word I is not subjective. It's the only objective word we have. (laughs) And if you think I is subjective, then you write twaddle, especially when you use the word I, because I is given this crazy authority rather than being the series of fragments out of which one's life is made. So take, for example, the, the piece I wrote on uh, Bayreuth World City. It's an essay about Bayreuth and about 18th century Bayreuth and Wagner's Bayreuth and contemporary Bayreuth. But it, it starts with something else I mentioned here and there, with my being 13 and playing with my parents' radiogram. Mm-hmm. And this voice comes, which is authoritative BBC says, this is da, 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 the 1958 Bayreuth Festival, and we are now going to start our broadcast of Wagner's The Ring of the Nibelung. And I listened to all 14 hours of it at the age of 13, and I was émerveillé, you know, I, mean, I was just staggered by it. And that turned me into, you know, a Wagner fan, but without being not a Bach fan, if See what I mean? I I never had to make a choice. Or between that and pop music. Because I certainly, you know, the rock music of my teenage years is profoundly important to me as I was a disco bunny. Oh. From the age of 14 onwards, I could not be pried out of discos. Where was that? In Manchester. Manchester had a lot of very good discos, and I pioneered a middle-class Jewish youth finding them. Not everyone (laughs) followed me. I even went to lunchtime discos. Uh, you would have been a TikTok influencer, I'm sure, but if, if this was happening now. 
Yes, I went to the Twisted Wheel, which is very famous in the myths of British uh, disco history. Mm. Anyway, I was haunted by this dream for a lot of my adult life that I was thrown onto this stage I'd never seen at Bayreuth. This is a repeated dream. And I was singing Votan. I could remember the tune, <laughs> not the words. <laughs> so there's this mixture of marvel and terror that be able to enunciate this music in my dream, but the scare that people would say I didn't know the words. And I had this dream till 2001, when I saw my first Bayreuth ring in Bayreuth. Mm -hmm. And the dream evaporated, I never had it again. Oh. So I thought, you know, this is a bit of one's eye, which is, totally objective in terms of a history of a subject passing through one. And therefore, I can write about that as my experience. And it's something in the world and in the histories of performance in the world. And in this instance, the history of Wagner performances and their relation to a more general culture, which is disclosed to one and within one over decades. You know, such as the fact being brought up in the presence of a lot of Holocaust survivors, escapees in Manchester, some of whom regretted having been expelled from their Wagnerian Germany, and some of whom would never even allow you to mention the name in their house. Yeah. So you again live in a kind of weird political conflict, which is not of one's own willing or choosing, which is also an aesthetic complex. And that's why. I wanted to write that piece about Bayreuth, really, just to get that piece of experience of my biography off my back as something which was already in the world without me. One of the other very formative experiences of my childhood, growing up in my grandmother's family and my mother's family, was that it was an entirely um, Egyptian, Syrian, Iraqi, Lebanese, Sephardic community of whom the wives, the grandmother generation, spoke every Mediterranean language. Husbands, not so much, but the wives who'd been hostesses, their prime, spoke everything. And in my grandmother's immediate family, my grandmother, they were melancholics. Melancholy was their mode of life. They'd always <laughs> lost the best part, even while enjoying their lives. The enjoyment was permitted by the mourning of this yeah. loss. That's what was the source of their pleasure. And for grandma, it wasn't Alexandria, which she had lost, but it was Seville and Toledo and how good life was before 1492 and the expulsion from Spain. And she'd talk about relatives in Seville in 1320 or Toledo in 1142 as if they'd recently been to have tea with her. And this turned out to be something of a, a syndrome when we met other members of her family from yeah. different parts of the Mediterranean who hadn't met each other since 1492, but they had the same stories. And for me, that was a kind of, if you like, a comforting disproof, if you like, of the realist fallacy, if you go back to also language philosophy. Yeah. Grandma was a critique of the realist fallacy.
because you could live in the unreal in this very concrete way. So I, I was happy with that. And I went to Seville when I was 19, which was still under Franco, thinking, will I feel at home there? Not at all. You know, I enjoyed being there. I thought it was very beautiful, but home, no. I thought it was rather oppressive and horrible place, really. But then five years ago now, I guess it was, when just after Brexit, a cousin I hadn't seen for years phoned me out of the blue and said, let's get our Spanish or Portuguese citizenship. Let's start the process as returning Sephardim. Mm. So I said, why not? And he wanted to do Spanish, but I suggested Portuguese because it was legally a little, not easier, but it was less demanding. And we came from exactly the same family. His mother was my grandmother's niece. But I just, my sister and I just happened to have our grandmother's birth certificate because she was born in London. And that, in a sense, was the only document I really needed. But once that had gone off to all the required authorities and been filtered through different rabbis, it was accepted that I was thrown out of Iberia in 1492-97. And I got my certificate of exile from the chief rabbi of Oporto. At that point, grandmother's myths became history, material history. All that stuff turned out to have been true. <laughs> and although I'm very happy to have a European passport, I felt deeply deprived of something in my own past, that this myth became oh. a rather brash legal reality. It was kind of crushing in an odd way. It made me quite depressed. I have recently found out in the course of an interview, actually, that I have absolutely no conception of how history works. <laughs> mm. And you have just encapsulated it, the, the material evidencing of a sequence of events creates history but destroys a memory. Yeah. And I wonder if I could try to use this to ask you about the developments in and writing about art, as you have witnessed it over the decades, that pertains to two things. One is this kind of blaring and confusion between the subject and the object. And the other one is how we conceive of history as individuals. So I'll try to give an example of where I think this might be prominent. So. You started talking about your early teaching moments, how you essentially equipped students or art students by putting them together with students of art history, how you kind of created a certain historical understanding. You created a vocabulary that's aesthetic, that kind of is external to necessarily the immediate experience of those students. We start there. It's very kind of classical art school training. Mm. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Sax.com. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? 
<sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. On the other hand, we have the extreme of art writing epitomizes maybe by the English duo, the White Pube. Are you familiar with them? Yeah, I'm familiar with yeah. the White Pube. I mean, but just, just for, for listeners, these are people who write about their experience of seeing art entirely through the perspectives of them seeing the art. Mm. So the, this is art writing that starts with, as I enter the gallery, I am in this particular mood and this is all about me. And look, there's a bench, so I am sitting on the bench. Oh, oh no, I am hungry. By the way, I hate this colonialist piece of crap art. Okay, I'm, I'm sketching this out. However, what just struck me, possibly you in your teaching, you have set up all these students to do what the white pube do, but you might not have realized that actually their relationship to history was not really under yeah. your control. Yeah. And that might have changed in the last couple of generations. Mm. for white pube, I think it's possible I did teach them actually, so that they were, or certainly they were close. Yes, there was, I'm sure there's a, there's a, you fund me for reparations. Yes. That you can contribute to. But, but the thing is, you're right about that and about always being slightly out of time with it and what one thinks one has achieved with students and what they do with their lives. And the funniest, earliest example I came of that was when, I don't know if you ever watched Teletubbies. Thankfully, they were not aimed at me, but I laughed yes. at the Teletubbies. Well, I love Teletubbies and I thought possibly, you know, the intelligent two-year-old was my paradigm for a viewer. <laughs> Time for Teletubbies. Time for Teletubbies. Time for Teletubbies. Time for Teletubbies. Dinky Winky. And after about 30 episodes, totally in trance, I phoned a friend and I said, Do you know the people? He said, They're all our ex students in cultural stuff. So there it was. I mean, I. Teletubbies were throwing back something I could never have said myself, but clearly had a relationship to the modes of cultural studies we'd set up in the early 70s. You know, the campness, the, all the codes were there. And I could never have written for a baby. <laughs> they could. I mean, that's, that's an iconic achievement. But one never thought it would be the outcome of and one or two of them have become copywriters. There was something cultural studies students sometimes did. They became copywriters for relatively avant-garde um, advertising companies. I, I think art writing as an enterprise, I talked about Vint, it really came to be later than that with Jean-Louis Scheffer, whose book in 1967, Scenographie d'un Tableau, which is about a rather minor chess-playing painting in the Gemalt Gallery in Berlin. And I read it enchanted because I couldn't understand anything in it. <laughs> I mean, that was just thrilling. And I read it and I reread it. And when I went to Portsmouth, I mentioned it to Geoffrey Steele, two of whose works you can see in this room, mm -hmm. who was my favorite British painter, I have to say. Like all people's work I love, I don't believe they exist. But there he was teaching in Portsmouth. And I mentioned this book to him. He said, yes, let's teach it. So we tried to teach it to second-year art students. <laughs> you know, we, we had to translate it. It's never been translated. Mm -hmm. And 
we kept a little dictionary of terms from structural linguistics, you know, secretly on the back of our hands, so <laughs> we didn't have to admit our own ignorance to the students. And I think that sheer difficulty that Schaeffer makes writing about art, that he learning to use the words to write about the image which you both elaborate and destroy. And then I followed him, and I think he's without doubt the great art writer, white male art writer of our time, is Jean-Louis Schaeffer, and that's because of his proper understanding of asynchronicity. So when he's doing the blood libel in Florentine painting or Sienese painting of the blood libel of the Jew stabbing the wafer, he makes it come temporarily after Dracula movies. Yeah. Bram Stoker comes before Piero della Francesca, and that is a structure of historical thinking which arises from writing the image as such. Now, Sheffer grew to hate this first book, and I did an interview with him in Leeds, and I said that I enjoyed it, and he went into a blind rage and shouted at me, I have nothing to do with that book. You know, it's the most destructive, foolish thing I ever wrote. I'd worked that out from his later writings, but and I said, okay, Jean-Louis, I am going to hold you to it. And I wrote a piece in the Journal of Visual Culture, which I held him to it and explained how all his work flowed from it, which I sent him. He, he didn't reply. But I think he quite liked it, actually. But they do like flattery, those very big intellectuals. I mean, they love it. I mean, small intellectuals like flattery as well. I mean, <laughs> do they? I mean, I mean, they don't get it. Well... There is Twitter for these kind of things. Oh, actually, I was going to ask you, what, what is the role of the, of, of the intellectual now? If you were growing up going to be a faggy, petty bourgeois intellectual, and we, we talked about the kind of intellectual that, that, that you turned out to be, what is there for the intellectual to do now? What, what, what is an intellectual? Well, on, on the whole now, they, they work, I think you were saying in our conversation before, I think on the whole now, they either issue from somewhere like the New School in New York, which gives them authority, whatever they say, mm. because the New School is a, a brand, yeah. or they work for wealthy private collectors who give them the freedom that um, the uh, art schools or universities don't, because the wealthy private collectors aren't relying on footfall. They like a bit of footfall in their collections, but they don't need it. Footfall is just, as you yourself said, a bit of the tax break. Yeah. But they've got enough tax breaks anyway. I found it very interesting when I went to see a Motherwell um, Spanish Civil War series in Dominique Levy in New York. And it was a beautiful collection of small drawings, early preparatory studies, one magnificently, one actually borrowed from the Met across the road, which again was an unusual thing for a public gallery to do. Mm -hmm. And it began with a poem of Lorca, which set up the whole exhibition to be Motherwell exploring, in his way, the experience of being garroted. So the black slash was the garrot, mm. and that was derived from this poem of Lorca. The Tate could never have done that, could never have begun an exhibition like that yeah. by displaying this beautiful work and at that point, I realized that probably good art writing was going to come either from that level of gallery commissioning work, because they didn't really give a damn, or from um, 
on an ongoing process, people like Art Angel, who without being wealthy also don't rely on the vulgar notion of footfall like the Tate do or like the National Gallery. So, you know, I'd be happy to write for Art Angel, I have done, and not so happy to write for the moguls, although it looks like I might be doing it, as I can be bribed. When you come back to there's, my own there's state... No, there's no creature more vain than the art critic. <laughs> but, you know, the point is, I've had very few offers of bribery. Many of my colleagues live on vast systems of international bribery from very important galleries and write their 10th essay on artist X whose prices will slip up another $100,000 as a result of it. But no, more, no new knowledge will come into well, the world. Well, look, let, let, me, let me challenge you a little bit on, on this, because having been a gallerist myself, not at that price point, admittedly, I know that art writing and the art press is of absolutely zero relevance to whether things sell or not. Mm. The kind of you know, 10 to maybe 100,000 pounds. Yeah. Price tickets. Maybe things start changing. And we, we discussed an exhibition that you might be involved in, in which, yes, there's a kind of apparatus of you know, loans from institutions and recognized writers contributing to the intellectual ejaculation of either good aesthetic accounts of the work itself or possibly some kind of you know, subjective treatment. So let, let's try to think about the potential of art writing as a knowledge-generating discipline still. How would we find value in this beyond just this kind of bourgeois preoccupation of, I, I, of writing for the fun of it? If, you know, in Edward Seed's tradition, if the intellectual, if the public intellectual has a role, a political role that goes beyond just the mere stating of fact and theorization, mm -hmm and production of knowledge that can then be put away in card catalogues. Is, is anything to do with art of any relevance no, I, in that? No, I'm not sure because he said, don't forget, was a member of the Palestine National Council mm. and um, was an activist for Palestinian rights. So there was a very close relationship between his um, theoretical writing and his political practice, which yeah. is quite unusual to that degree. I could name a few other intellectuals. I mean, Sartre would be another, I guess. A number of, actually, a number of Palestinian women. But it, 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 generally speaking, I think that very tight relationship arises from a specific commitment. It's not just a commitment to agonizing over whether the man was an anti-Semite or not, and doing mm -hmm. a lot of mea culpa if you discover that he was, or Heidegger was an anti-Semite. You know, you, you can get an, intellect, a, an intellectual reputation of being political and on the left, by facing up to your own adoration of Heidegger the anti-Semite. I don't call that politic. Uh, I call that a, a certain kind of public role of the intellectual. But on the whole, you know, I'm not sure that it matters, actually, very much in the end. You know, there are obviously figures who have been a huge influence, like Chomsky, for example, although a lot of us never agreed with him mm -hmm. over very much at all. It's about the public intellectual. Gosh, it's something I've never wanted to be. But I'm astonished by how many of my friends think they are, actually. They think they're addressing a constituency other than the art world. There are then journals which assume a certain 
role as being a public intellectual within a very limited public. I'd say a journal like After All probably is that now, mm -hmm. in the way that Art Forum once was oh. in relation to actual issues rather than the ones which made Art Forum public intellectual. It's in relation to politics, you know, American Marxist politics and feminism. So within certain publics, see, someone like the art historian Carol Duncan could emerge as a public intellectual, but only during that configuration of the art world and that journal around feminism and, you know, working for journals that influence people in the art world in a way like Marxist perspectives in the 1970s. But again, all that depends on a certain kind of fragility. So in that case, the relationship of, say, art historians to Marxist perspectives was dependent to, in a way, on the work of the Genoveses on slavery. So if you wanted to be anti-slavery and you were white, you went with the Genoveses in America. But the Genoveses became the most blood-curdling reactionaries. So the whole of that history is now nullified by the about turn of some of the leading figures. And that, again, outdates that moment of the art world and art writing when people were fighting for greater equality. Mm. You know, and the, the figures who survived that are people like Alan Sekula, not because his politics changed much, but because he himself was a complete nutcase. You know, you didn't go jumping on and off fishing ships and taking photographs unless you're completely mad. <laughs> you know, and that comes over in fish stories yeah. more than the politics that Sekula is a mad artist like Van Gogh. And I don't mind that if people are mad artists. I think it unleashes all kinds of interesting things. I think it's probably the best chances an artist has, mm. given that it's so out of fashion to be you know, uncalculated. And I would welcome a return of the completely mad fixated artist, mm. just as a novelty for the 21st century. Mm. And uh, well, Liz Price is one. That's just a, she's the person that, on whom I wrote my last substantial essay. And the other person I've just written on, Anne Talentar, is also a completely obsessional mad artist. I mean, her phenomenology of the art gallery and exterior space is a crazed cosmology, but it's also rigorous and formal and constructivist, you know? And even Jeffrey Steele, whose work looks so rationally, he was nuts. He would construct these extremely rigorous systems to produce objective art, and then he'd introduce faults into them. So even he didn't know what he was going to end up with. It occurred to me that given the impending mental health crisis, or the already present mental health crisis, all we have to do is to reclassify a big chunk of the population as, as artists, artists, as we have been aiming to do. It's just we have to dispense with the art school. All you have to do now mm -hmm. to be an artist is to be slightly unwell. And maybe the kind of re-enchantment of artistic yeah, production yeah. is going to realize itself it's precisely fun. despite of the arts. But, but when we were clearing out my partner's parents' house, and his father was a, had been a regional postmaster, but also a, a, a shipbuilder. He'd been kind of craftsman and worked on building a model of a 17th century mm. French galleon. And he had all the materials that he'd been used along with his group of friends to build the galleon in this house. He'd built a galleon while his house completely fell to pieces. And every single screw 
of every single size and every single joint and every single material used had been put into large square matchboxes. The serial number of each different kind of screw inscribed on the end of the matchbox, all of which had been then fitted into larger trays. And these were all over the living room when we were clearing the house. And I looked at them and I understood something about the difference between art and non-art for the first time in my life. But if you had taken all of those to a gallery and said, these are Hannah Darboven's new work, they would have been worth a fortune. That is about the most cruel thing anyone has ever said. But... Well, I admire her. But what I learned from Thierry's storage methods, this is a man who read a lot, but mainly about naval history, also quite a lot about art as it happens. But he also didn't had a space where he stored his spare books up in a loft in which he laid all the books horizontally maybe about 10 deep and 20 high. And there was not a single, dis however thick the different books were, they were perfectly imbricated. So there was not one which was horizontally propped over another. They were all flat. And again, you think that, that's conceptual art. I think we go back to the idea that in order to be able to say something, one must first have something to say. Yeah. So by that token, conceptual art can only be a manifestation of something that is already well-established within nature. You can only dream things that you've already experienced, or maybe vice versa. Yeah. I want us to talk about the book. Ah, oh, the book. So I think this is a good way to try to pin down how it all started, or at least how you have tried to make yourself believe you remember how it all started, mm. given that we've already talked about the brutal performativity of memory. You found yourself trying to write up your PhD in Paris in 1967. There's a painting on the wall up there at the mm -hmm. top by Vivienne Collat. Vivienne's mother was one of the few survivors of the Wodge ghetto. Mm -hmm. Vivienne had her mother's dead now, a very strained relationship with her mother, rather like that of Chantal Ackerman, over the question of how could you suffer even more than I do? You know. <laughs> and there's a film, a rather beautiful little film made by Yon about Vivian and her mother, in which Vivian is bullying her mother to say more about the ghetto, but say more, say more, and her mother says, how can I say more? I can only remember one thing. It was cold. And that's all she'll say, it was cold. And I think that partly inspired the way I've written that little book. Because when I think, what do I remember about January 68 in Paris? I remember it was cold. That, I think, is accurate. But the cold is mingled with other memories, i.e. buying the book of Rosenthal in the librairie on the Rue de Seine, which was still new, although it had been published in 1910, buying the last new copy. I can remember the coat I was wearing, which was a beautiful alpaca-lined tweed coat, and it was warm. And I was carrying briefcase in cream leather, which had been my great uncle's briefcase when he worked for the Bank Ottoman in Alexandria before 1915, which I still had. And the book was in that. And it was cold because on the front of this overcoat I was very proud of as a style item, was frozen like a board. 
the wet snow on it, it was like wearing a huge, heavy piece of cardboard by the time I got back to the hotel and walked up to the fifth or sixth floor to gloat over the book. So I don't think there's any memory without these, surprisingly enough, mnemonics. So I think when I, I saw Vivienne's mother saying, all I can tell you about the ghetto, it was cold. I guess now that authorized me many years later to say in this book that it was cold. It's the first thing I remember about Willisnow. Mm. And I remember the summer before in 1967, it was extremely hot. And it was kind of all shot through with a number of sexual frissons because London, and to a much lesser extent in Paris, were filling up with very, very cute guys who had all escaped from the Vietnam call-up. <laughs> and they, they were everywhere, you know, one was, never mind, gosh, you know, they, they this, were exact. This is, this is the real method of American imperialism. It's not the conquest, it's the, it's the dissidents who <laughs> invade Europe. So I, th I think that's why part of my memories of, the, of those periods are so dense, really, because simply of um, meeting this distance, but the proximity of struggles which were new and books which were very old. You know, like buying a book published in 1910, in which I bought the last copy from Laurence in 1968, new. And so that's something which is quite ancient in terms of the lifetime of a modern book. But at the same time, it's being bought in a framework which is completely of that moment of disruption and exile and movement of populations in new ways, protest movements. The reading of it is forcibly articulated by that as a reading of a kind of political history of art and how does it stand up. And in fact, it stood up rather well, I think, because it was so engaged with what criticism was, what painting was, what the relation between them was. How do these different critics in France and the Romantic period see things differently because of their political engagement? And how complex that becomes in the mismatch between what you see and what your politics are. Which was always my argument with T.J. Clark, that he always saw in work what his politics wanted him to see. Mm. Always. Never anything else which at times made him a marvellous writer, as with Corbet, and at times just a rather fussy one, as with Manet. That is the, that's the prevailing paradigm of art criticism today. Still, I think, yes, it is probably. So all of that is, is not there in 67, but 68, 69, but it's, it's, it's just emerging and I'm part of it. But my own capacity to remember is articulated around very specific things like a little restaurant which has gone now in the Passage du Commerce called the Restaurant Jean, where you could eat a three-course meal for three francs. You knew it was a risk. You know, you had to have, <laughs> you had to have some kaolin to, you know, the kaolin and morphine you used to drink for diarrhea <laughs> always on you, you know, if the meal didn't work. You know, you knew that behind the drugstore Saint-Germain were all the rent boys, and that was a kind of gay life which I didn't take part in. 
I didn't have the money. Had I done that, I would have met Bart. <laughs> this is the irony of all these I'm things. I'm not entirely sure whether that's something to regret, really, is it? No, it's not. There's nothing to regret. I have no regrets whatsoever. But even though you have proclaimed yourself a communist and you've talked about dear friends of yours being Maoists, there's no account here of you joining in in the protest in May 1968. Instead, you keep on going to these dusty art history libraries. I think I explained it partly that I had raised £300 to cover three months' trip to France to do my archive work, which is about £4,000 in today's currency. So when May 68 occurred, I couldn't go. It wasn't that I didn't follow the events of May from January onwards. One could see them coming. But that I could only go if the libraries and archives and railways were running. <laughs> At the same time in 68, there was enough to do here because there were the, the American war in Vietnam demonstrations. And there was also my own work, which you see on the front cover of the book of my giving a little speech in a 1969, actually, in a garage. An anti-Vietnam protest. With anti-Vietnam, but in actual fact, I'm launching a white supporters of black power movement. Mm -hmm. And I was very involved with one of the black power factions, about the only white person who was, a couple of others in London. So there was plenty of stuff to do politically to which I was quite committed and, and, and did. Paris, May 68, wasn't the centre of attention for me at all, but not at all. And I think looking back now, and looking back from the point of view of the present uprisings and unrest in France, is that there's a way in which the French left are totally in love with their oppressive state, and that this gives rise to a degree of violence and confrontation which I don't think any other European country has had since the war. And in 1967, August, when I arrived in Paris, one could see that this was the beginning of a learning to live in a police state. Mm. It was extremely dangerous just to walk around the streets. No, no, I didn't want to engage with the French student struggle. You know, I had plenty enough of my own from the black power, from the... You know, our own Maoist one in the early 70s, which I did rather than gay liberation, you know, I tossed a coin, which one should I do? And decided maybe the political one at that stage was more important because the sex one would come anyway. These were all micro decisions one made, thinking one had any power over them, which of course one didn't. But there were actions which we undertook, which had an effect. You're talking about public intellectuals now on the general politics of the country. So the public intellectual power excellence in the early 70s in this country was that profoundly reactionary and racist, I think, the psychologist, who believed in the inferior intelligence of black people, the inferior intelligence of Irish people. I was invited to LSE in the early 70s to give a lecture on his new work on the racial inferiority of the blacks and the Irish. And the lecture theatre was crammed. I was quite far back, but I was there. And it was very well organised, with a delegation down front who knew what they were going to do. And as soon as Isenck uttered the first words of his new thesis, he was picked up 
by the flying group in the front, <laughs> carried physically out of LSE and dumped on the pavement. And they were right. And that gave rise to the original process of no platforming. It was very serious then, and the fascists having no right to speak. Now, for better or for worse, for better, I think, that had a huge impact on the trade union movement. Huge. Because in the dock workers' strike of the late 60s, led by Jack Dash, which all the left wanted to follow, it was totally racist. It was about purging the dock force of Chinese who'd been in it since the 1850s. Read Oscar Wilde, you know. It was about keeping blacks out of the, and immigrants out of the dock workers. It was hideous. And that icing moment, followed by Rock Against Racism, released something in the political atmosphere for the trade unions begin to take their first stand against racism. So you might say, I think the public intellectual, in relation to the publicly intellectual critique of him by a group, achieved the opposite of what he intended. So there's a complicated relation to what is the public intellectual. Here's the negative intellectual who gave rise to an event which, although condemned by the press and the government, made people think. And that was why no platforming always had to be a very special event, not like now. When but it isn't now. Exactly. No, no, it's completely For, for a moment, I thought I'm going to be on tape nodding along to your endorsement of no, of no platforming, which... I, I definitely think has got out of hand and is being performed for completely dif different purposes. Totally, totally. Well, let's get back to the last bit of your <laughs> flattery autobiography that I cited earlier of you being a thuggy bourgeois intellectual. We've dealt with the intellectual, I think we've dealt with some of the bourgeois and anti-bourgeois politics. So let's dwell a little bit on the fagginess and the queerness. You, you said a moment ago that in your politics and your political activism, you did not invest yourself into gay liberation. But notions of queerness come up in your writing. You've written about pornography. In, even in this little book, the word queer is used kind of against itself. Yeah. But mm. nonetheless, it's an apparatus to which you, you return. Well, I, I suppose partly because I feel some of the, we've already evoked this in relation to other materials, but I think, if you like, part of the problem with queerness as it is now is, if you like, partly my fault. Because people do what they want with what you say, <laughs> not what you want with what you say. <laughs> so there's a sense in which one sees oneself overwhelmed by a, an odd form of one's own success, if you like as a diffuser mm. and a teacher. But I was criticizing queerness as entropic 20 years ago in my article, Hyperventilation. It's uh, a kind of warning that if you queer everything, everything becomes nothing. Mm. And the queer subject becomes not that which is infinitely put off in a nice Derridian way, but the queer subject becomes that which is totally null, null and void, and in fact unable to speak. And that's in my Hyperventilation essay, which is a long time ago. And I, th I think it still stands. I think there's a, a very new young generation of queer theorists who realize this and are writing new, very sophisticated work. 
is my own friend and colleague, Gonzalo Lamas, who's currently at film school in France, inventing a queer film of uh, Racine's Iphigenie, which I understand completely because it speaks to me across the detritus that lies between us as generations. It speaks across the competitiveness of my own generation, the generation below me. There's a new guy in Paris uh, called Pierre Niedergang, who's just brought out a book called um, La Normativité Queer, which is a critique <laughs> of the immediate, not understanding the relation between the normative and normal. It's a very beautiful, he's, well, he's in his 20s, but boy, it's a clever critique of his immediate predecessors. One thing I felt was that my sexuality, for example, has nothing to do with my parents. I would never go for the coming out or outing thing. I believed and came to theorize that later in life, that who you are is in the eye of the beholder. And it's not my problem if they don't see me, it's theirs. Because I will anyway lead my life. So I was quite opposed to the coming out narrative. Mm. See, when, later on people would say, don't you find it difficult if I have a very attractive gay student? I said, not at all. There's, there's no problem at all. There's a point where in the seminar room, in, in the supervision, desire ends in that way. We can talk about it. If we're sufficiently in the right frame, we can exchange experiences in order to help their work. But even if the most beautiful gay student in the world can walk through, I don't even notice it. But one of the problems, obviously, going as a gay person into an institution like that, was that you had to sit and listen to all these art teachers. Now, I think on the question of relationships between teachers and students, quite often, I would say in 50 to 60% of the cases, even more, it would be the female students who decided they were going to have a relationship with a particular tutor, not the other way around. They would discuss it. Yes, I fancy him. Let, you know, in other words, they give it a try. And they would. They'd hook mm. the tutor they fancied. And the trouble came is when they dumped them. Then the tutor would turn into the power thing and the victim thing. And that was important for me because you learned that people are not necessary victims of the predation. They're victim of a power structure in which they themselves have been predators without holding power and have enjoyed it up to the point where they have to fight back. Now, one of the problems on interviewing new students was to get rid of the sexist chat you know, because mainly to be men on the panel. And someone come in, oh, well, I've got to take her. You know, she's got a nice pair of knockers, this, that, and the other. You know, and I'd try and discipline that to a certain extent. I had no power. I'd just begun teaching. Then about three years in, it was becoming a policy that these things shouldn't be said. And they were still saying them. And a young guy came in, a complete, you know, perfect fairy of the period, beautiful young man, very camp, and he'd come from a design background, which they didn't like. And then they started muttering about hairdressers and this, that, and the other. Anyway, he left the interview room, and they said, we can't take him, can we? I mean, he's not this, you know, 100 reasons. And I said, why can't you take him? They said, are you saying you should? I said, yes, I am. They said, why? I said, well, he just walked out of the room. Didn't you see? He's got the nicest butt I've ever seen in an interview. <laughs> And they looked at me and I said, you lot make one more sexist remark in these interviews and I walk. And then you will have no 
students at all next year. And it shut them up forever. It just worked. Once you threw who you were back to them in their mode. And as it happens, the guy got in. He was absolutely brilliant. He was a student, simply all the staff loved in the end, once they overcame their own prejudices. And he was, sadly enough, the first student I knew who died of AIDS. Mm. You know, he went on to glory. He went to the Royal College. You know, nothing could stop him. And I found being able to throw back that thing of them about the prettiest but it did it. You know, politically at that moment, it did it because they couldn't come back on me without being bigoted. So they were all shamed back into their own liberalism. So I think these things historically have been very complicated. One's had to fight them at every possible level and use your own body, if you like, as a barrage for their homophobia in order to draw them out. These fights around forms of equality and shedding prejudices and relearning things. And it was true, there's a, there's a woman who's retired now, she became the head of a very important art school who joined the course, who wouldn't speak. I mean, I was her personal tutor and I had her for the whole of her first year. And we sat for an hour every week in silence, more or less. And she did very little in the studio but I knew there was something there. So I wrote glowing reports on her every week about how interesting she was and how important her ideas would be once you could fully articulate them. And they all wanted to throw her out. At the end of the year, someone started teaching in the studios called Kate Walker, who was one of the great feminist artists of her period. And I took this person who's remaining na na nameless down. I said, there's someone I want you to meet downstairs. And I took and introduced her to Kate, and she came out. Mm. For the next two years, she pretty well ran the art department. She arranged most of its events. She raised the intellectual level. She invented new forms of feminist performance art. You know, it was true contemporary art. But again, you couldn't do that now because the person wouldn't have enough points to survive one term, let alone a whole year. I mean, you could do Lacanian therapy as a required module. Yes, but then it's the therapist who's supposed not to speak. <laughs> what can you do? I mean, the, the, the thing is, is, it's hard to reconstitute those textures because of contemporary speech yeah. and the interdictions in it. I heard you say something quite fundamentally important in one of your lectures about the relevance of rhetoric and the linguistic makeup with which mm. we get landed to everything that we express. I wonder how, going back to images, how when we have on the one hand the finite number of possibilities within language, our own language, our individual language, our individual access to rhetoric, whatever that leaves us with, how that compares with the possibilities of the image. So in this kind of navigation of a certain freedom that might be constrained, where does the image lie? Is the image subject to the same constraints? I think in the art writing at Goldsmiths, I, compared with my other professor colleagues, I taught a very limited thing, had a very limited syllabus. And it was based on 
four or five major tropes from a dictionary of rhetoric. Actually, a, a teenager's dictionary of rhetoric, a French one. And the first one was something which is now wildly popular, which is ekphrasis. Mm-hmm. The exercise I asked them to do was to go to the National Gallery, choose one painting, all of them, and to write 500 words about it. I chose the most complicated painting I could think of in terms of the number of figures represented in the amount of brushwork, which is one of the big Rubens landscapes. And then they'd write their 500 words and bring it back to Goldsmiths the next day. They'd sit around the table and then they'd pass it on to the next person who would read out what they'd written. Never had them read their own work out until it was well developed. So I thought it was important for them to hear it. Mm-hmm. The exercise went on for five weeks and they were asked consciously to introduce a new trope into what they'd written in order to make it more lively. This is Longinus, classical aesthetics, neo-Hellenistic aesthetics, to make it more lively. And they could introduce inversion, which is horizontal change within the sentence. They could have periphrasis. They could decide to adjust it into the mode of prosopopeia, in which case the painting speaks or the mode of apostrophe, in which case it's them speaking to the painting, or to something in it. And that was it. So that went on for five weeks until the piece had been written as if out of a rule book. And they became aware of the impossibility of not using rhetoric, and therefore of the need (laughs) to pay attention to it, that a turn of phrase is a turn of phrase. It doesn't just come from you. And my very last seminar at Goldsmiths was my first ever life-drawing seminar. There was a second-year student who wasn't part of the seminar, and we were in a big studio, and he leant against a window and looked out of it, fully clothed, of course. And I asked them each to bring a notebook and um, a sharp pencil, probably 3B, and to study photographs of, you know, slave teachers like Coldstream, you know, marking, which they did. And I asked them to take their pencil and study carefully the figure and write down one word (laughs) until they'd done 12 words. It took all morning. After the 12 words, then they passed on, they read them out, and it was amazing. So the final bit of that bit of the exercise was to allow themselves commas and particles. So that was completed by the end of the morning. It was a long session. And we all agreed to our astonishment that They'd never read, written anything better. <laughs> the second half of the exercise was in the afternoon where they had to go and do the same thing on the railway sidings at New Cross Gate. So they came in and did it all over again, and we read out all the pieces and agreed that they'd never written anything worse. <laughs> That's a surprising turn. So we were all thrilled with it. We learned what good writing could be, how it could be, and we learned how it could be bad. 43 years of teaching to arrive at that. Exactly. That seems like a good use of of a working life. Adrian, thank you so much. Thank you, Pierre. Future Imperfect, The Past Between My Fingers by Adrian Rifkin is published by My Bibliotheque. Adrian's collected essays, communards and other cultural histories were published in 2016 by Brill. I'm Pierre Delancey, and the editor was Marsha Poe. Thanks for listening, and join us next time.